This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Best Practice. I'm Richard Aidy. A bit later in the show, the work you do getting to work, otherwise known as commuting. Now, pay attention, there's going to be some changes. If you're like most people, you've probably been through a reorganisation or two. Quite apart from whether they make sense or are well executed, most are not well communicated. And if it's part of your job to tell people that there's one coming down the pipeline, you should think about making some notes. Liz Kislik's a consultant and coach, and she's helped a number of organisations get this right. Liz, you say the first step in communicating this is to allow plenty of time. And way more time than you think you need, because when you've got a big change, so many things happen, there are so many moving parts, that in the moment, there's never enough time. So planning for it is crucial, and making sure that you have time for all the different kinds of conversations and reactions and reworking of whatever your plan is all has to be in place. It's not enough, is it, just to have a, an all-hands or town hall meeting and say, hey, we're doing this. That doesn't work. It's an excellent start because it's very good for everybody to hear the news all together. If you can make that happen, uh, much more difficult with today's global companies. But if you can have everybody get the news at once, then it's not like some people are more privileged than others. But that's just the start because people only hear a fraction of what's said. They hear the thing that's most exciting or most terrifying. And then they tend to be thinking instead of listening. So then you have to break it down into smaller groups and, and individual kinds of notifications. I've certainly sat in these meetings because I've been through a few of these. And somebody, uh, maybe even me on occasions, has started asking questions. And it's easy to see how from the manager's point of view, things could get off track. There's no question because it's very unusual for a single manager or even a management team to have practiced enough, thought through enough, what are all the different kinds of questions that are going to come up and are we actually ready? Do we know the answers so that we can reassure people when necessary, so that we can uh, behave and respond in a coordinated way? Sometimes you have different executives responding in completely different ways in the same meeting about the same subject. It's hard to get it right. Yeah. The other thing you underline is that it's important to make it clear that this this initial town hall is not it. There's going to be follow-ups. There's going to be both smaller formal meetings and, and a whole bunch of informal meetings. That's important for a few reasons. One is it actually creates a kind of insurance for the leadership team that they have the opportunity to correct if they need to and adjust as they need to for all the things they didn't anticipate. So it's actually good for the leadership. It reassures employees that they will have an opportunity to think about how this affects them and then come back and ask their questions. And although you may be comfortable, Richard, asking in a public forum what's on your mind, Many people 
are actually afraid to do that in the public circumstance and will go away with their questions unanswered unless they have the opportunity to ask them in private. And of course, we all think of things later. As you go home and you think about how it affects you, as you talk to your colleagues, new questions come up. So it's very important that there be multiple iterations of the conversation and different kinds of communications. You know, you might want some email communication, depending on the circumstance. You might want posters in the lunchroom, Mm. lots of different forms so that people can take it in in their own way and get used to whatever the ideas are, and then come and have individual feedback discussions with their manager or with uh, human resources or even with the senior executives. Another thing you're keen, I think, to underline, Liz, is the importance of ensuring that all levels of management can actually explain the context, which, which seems obvious, but it's not always done. And when it isn't done, it's a really bad look. Yeah. Uh, It's really a botch. And in general, just as you made the point before, leadership thinks that the single town hall or all hands meeting handles it. Everybody now understands everything. But in fact, most employees will then consult with their immediate supervisor or manager. And if that person doesn't really understand what the news is about, or doesn't fully accept it, which can be even worse, the messaging can be terrible and actually fly in the face of what the leadership team is trying to do. And then there's a huge amount of repair work that can be necessary. So it's very important to go down the chain and make sure that everybody understands the larger context, but also how it applies specifically to their direct reports. Have you actually seen that where there just hasn't been the level of briefing done down the chain and it can be really mishandled and then you've got damage to repair? Oh, that I'm sorry to say it, but that's much more typical, in fact, than having the entire hierarchy on board. So you can really have a lot of upset, for example, at the front line. One very common example is something changes in the business and schedules need to change to accommodate it. And frontline supervisors have no idea why this is happening, so they can't provide context, and they therefore end up acting in very dictatorial ways. Then the front line's all upset, say it's a customer service operation. You can have real trouble staffing and making sure you have people there when you need them because you didn't explain to them properly the importance of the change to serve customers and how we're going to help you get used to it and accommodate and why it's all going to be okay eventually. This one sounds like it's relatively straightforward to solve. It just requires the investment in in getting people, um, I I guess, training them, perhaps getting them to rehearse what they're going to say uh, and and role play it so that they really understand it and can communicate it clearly. Yes, and there are two main reasons that organizations in some cases actually avoid this kind of planning. One is the upfront time that it takes to do it, which seems so burdensome upfront even though it saves many, many hours and pain later. The other is that very often it is hard 
to control the announcement happening at the time the leadership wants it to, if indeed it is percolating through the layers of the organization. So you have to trade off, is this something that we can let get out? It's leaked, in effect. Because as soon as you're training everybody, you know some of them are going to talk. Yeah, yeah. So it really is a challenge. Yes, I can imagine. You also believe that it's really important to sort of describe the organizational pain and, and then how that the change is going to address it. Yes, this is about setting the context. When you can show people that something has not been working or has gone awry and they're aware of it and they understand it and they relate that to their own role, they see, for example, that some process isn't working or that the compensation structure needs to be changed because some people feel they're not being paid fairly or whatever the situation happens to be. If they understand what the problem is, they're much more open to hearing about potential solutions than if they're just told the change is coming on Tuesday. That's it. And also, I think uh, you, you make this really clear, you've got to understand the impact on you and the team around you because otherwise you can you can think, okay, so the company needs to do this because we're incurring an extra expense or we've got a problem with our brand. And I, I can buy into that, but it doesn't mean I necessarily understand how it's going to affect me and my team. That's right. And that kind of effect can be anything from people's duties changing and they're fearful because they don't know how to do the new thing, or the expectations for performance may change, or if we're acquired or merging, who knows what rules might change and what leadership might change. So most of this is disruptive and causes real fear for people. And if you don't explain it, they make up in their own heads situations and stories that can actually be significantly worse than what the reality will turn out to be. That feeds into another thing that you really strongly suggest, which is about giving the people who are affected as many options as is practical, but also as much opportunity to participate in this. So it's not something that's just being authored out of the C-suite. This is something that they get to author as well. That's right. Because when they get a chance to participate either to help craft solutions or even in what can feel like a kind of vote of assent, they're much more likely to accept it than if they feel it's forced on them. I've been involved in a couple of different situations where people who had their budget slashed were eager to do it when they helped craft the plans for going forward because they saw what a difference it would make. That's one situation. Or in another, for example, where human resources leaders helped place their colleagues, their department was going out of business in effect, helped place their colleagues and stayed till the end to do it rather than looking for soft landings themselves, even though they knew they might be out of work for a while afterward. People can be very committed to the new solution if they help make it. What about tone, Liz? I think tone is really important in, in lots of interactions in life. 
And I, I was thinking about a change that I've, I've been through here at the ABC and the senior manager who came to speak to us, what impressed me about him was that when he was asked questions, he wasn't afraid to say, I don't know the answer to that, but we'll find a way of working it out and you know we'll come back to you. Instead of just saying, oh, it's going to be this way, he, he actually was able to, to have some humility. Yes. And authenticity is another way to think about this. That's a very popular term these days, but somebody who can be real with you while he's explaining what's going on and being willing to expose his own weakness or vulnerability in it makes you feel more trusting that he's actually taking into account your views or at least the fact that you matter enough to be real with you. And in times of change, you know, we're all grown-ups. Everybody understands things may not go 100% according to plan, but it's a lot easier to have confidence in someone who owns up to the imperfection of the situation and even to their grasp on it than someone who says, this is simple, it's straightforward, you don't need to have any discussion, it's all handled, here it is tied with a bow. Nobody believes that. No. When you are being spun by somebody, you know, especially if you are a, a, an expert in that subject, everything about it feels wrong. And yet, because the authority is is the person saying it, you, you, you're kind of forced to go along with it, but you don't buy it. Yes. And so that's exactly what happens. You're forced. And people who are forced do not perform as well as people who are participating willingly. And so it actually undercuts what might be the benefit of the solution itself. All right, Liz. Thank you very much for that. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Liz Kislik. This is Best Practice on RN, the ABC Listen app, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Richard Aidy. How do you get to work? I catch a bus, then a train and walk from the station. I don't mind it, though it would be better if I didn't have to change modalities, so if I was just on the train, for example. HR writer and friend of the show, Amanda Woodard, has been having a look at commuting. Amanda, how long are people taking to get to work? Well, for most of us, the average is about half an hour. And that really hasn't changed, actually, substantially for a number of years, despite the kind of population growth in our big urban centres. So that kind of suggests to me that perhaps people are moving near to where they work. But um, there are about two million people, that's a quarter of the sort of employees, who are travelling and commuting much more than that. They're spending at least 45 minutes travelling, and that's each way we're mm. talking about, and, and some much longer. I mean, I'm sure you know, I know several people who left Sydney, left Melbourne and moved far away to the bigger house, bigger garden in order to have a, a better quality of life and yet then end up spending vast amounts of their free time travelling back and forth to their work. Seems crazy, perhaps. Yeah, I, I don't think of myself as living... I don't live close. I live in Sydney's northern suburbs. I don't feel I live huge... I mean, I feel I'm in the middle ring, but if I catch the bus to the station and then get the train into town and walk... It really is about an hour. Yes, it was the same for me when I was in London. It was an hour, even I lived in the centre of London, but it was an hour across to the other side and an hour back. And that's 
a huge kind of chunk out of your day when you think what you could be doing in that time. And then particularly if you're hanging around waiting for buses or you're standing on a crowded train or you're sitting in interminable traffic, it's, you can imagine how frustrating and stressful that becomes. How do we feel? about this time spent travelling? Because, as you say, some of us are spending an hour. Some people are spending a lot more, of course. Yeah. Well, there are lots of surveys about this. I mean, there's one German survey that I found interesting that said that someone would have to earn 40% more to achieve the cha- the same kind of job satisfaction. This is someone who, who commutes long distances I'm talking about. Yeah. They'd have to earn 40% more to be equivalent to someone who's able to walk to work. It seems that we don't really appreciate what that long commute is doing to us. So hang on, you're talking about the difference between something that other people can measure yes. and what we're able to see for ourselves. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, there was a, a really interesting study as well that came out of Washington, D.C., where they um, proposed to people, look, you can either have a salary of was 86,000 a year Mm. or you can have a salary of 83,000 a year. But the difference is, if you take the higher salary, you'll be travelling 250 hours extra in a year. And that was only for a 3,000 difference in salary. And yet, 84% of people took the higher salary with the longer commuting hours, which suggests that, you know, when you break it down, those... 250 hours works out to something crazy like $12, $12 an hour. Something like that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's mad. So we it, that suggests to analysts that we don't appreciate the impact that long commuting is having on our health and well-being and happiness. So do we know it's, it's having an impact? Because it seems intuitive that it would, that it's going to affect our health and well-being. Yeah, look, it is. There's even a study in, in Sweden that says that 40% of people, employees who travel long distances, are more likely to um, divorce, whether that's because one of them is spending further, longer time away from home, I don't know. But besides, you know, that quirky statistic, the impact on our health is we're having a more sedentary lifestyle if we're sitting on a bus and a train or in a car, whereas, you know, all commuting is not the same. If you're on a bike or if you're walking, then you'll feel perhaps more in control of your own destiny and you are obviously exercising more. And and despite the fact that, that I think the statistics on deaths from cycling accidents has been going up a little bit, it's actually much healthier for you to ride a bike into work if you possibly can. I don't think that most of us even think of walking or riding a bike as commuting. I think we've mostly got it in that box where we're sitting down or or perhaps if we're unlucky, standing up Mm. on public transport or sitting in a car. We don't we don't tend to think of the of the walking cycling part. No. No, we don't. Yes, in fact, talking just before I came in here, you kind of think about your journey on public transport and the car, but you don't think about the walks or or at either end of that journey. It's interesting what you said about Sweden, because I remember reading some years ago that the central coast, which is north of Sydney, and where a lot of people commute from, has very high divorce statistics. And nobody could say, well, this this is causal, but there's a correlation and I think the so-called the thinking is that it's people who are just having to get up early and go to work 
and they're coming back late because the commute is so big. Mm. I think as well, we don't think we've talked about the sort of the mental stress of that as well. Uh, and that carries over into how people are satisfied about their life in general. You know, e- even I think at weekends, you know, you're perhaps anticipating getting up and getting onto that train or bus and the unpredictability of it as well I mean commuting is fine if everything goes well and perhaps if you're on a train and you're going through beautiful countryside but the moment it all collapses and breaks down and there's a you know extreme weather event or whatever it may be then it becomes very deadening and stressful and you know stuck in traffic jams unable to move it's just well we both know how awful that is yeah i do all right so what about employers how do employers regard commuting time do they think about it at all yeah they do and they don't like it either in fact there's some research that shows that if you're applying for a job that an employer is looking at your cv and seeing where you live in some cases, and thinking, oh, well, they live in quite an affluent suburb with really good transport connections. They'll be good. They'll always turn up for work on time. But then if they see that you're working, that rather you're living in a rather poor neighbourhood where they know transport links aren't great, then you are less likely to be called in for an interview, according to research that they've done in the US. This is American, yeah. Yeah. So there's discrimination based on how far away you are. Yeah, absolutely. And think about all that, you know, potential loss to business of people who who are kind of stuck in this cycle of poverty. You know, they're out there in an outer suburb. They're being discriminated against because the transport links aren't good enough or the perception is that they're not good enough. And so they're not going to be called in for interview and they're not likely to get those jobs. And this is particularly, I think, affects women as well because... A woman who's got, who's more likely to have caring responsibilities, you know, if a child gets sick and they need to go and pick them up from nursery, or they've got elderly parents who they need to be quite close to, then they are far more likely to select a job that is perhaps beneath their skill set, but is closer to home than they are to go for that high paying job in the CBD that takes them an hour to get there. Is there a a kind of Goldilocks distance and time, I'm wondering, because, and I think you've done a bit of working from home, and I have in the past, and what I found was that I didn't like it. It didn't suit me. I like to be around other people, but I would probably rather not have to spend an hour getting to and from work. There must be, you would think, a number, maybe it's not the same for everybody, where it gives you a time to transition between the work state you and the rest of you. Maybe maybe that's some, I don't know if there's research out there or not. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think you're right. Having done jobs with very different commuting times, I'm finding personally that that 25 minutes, 30 minutes, the average that I quoted at the beginning is really ideal. It's just enough for me to wake up properly, get a hang of what's on the news and prepare myself for the day. And hey, there I am. I'm at work. But I think research suggests that every minute that goes beyond that becomes a minute that is increasing in dissatisfaction around your uh, about what you think about your job yeah and yet it's there's a sort of boiling frog effect isn't it because as you were talking about earlier people don't realize this they don't quite realize how much it's affecting them no they don't all right so to recap the best thing to do would be to walk or, or get on your bike really Yes, if you don't like working from home, (laughs) I do. But if you don't like 
working from home, then certainly I think what we need to do is we have need, to, need to have better bike lanes, don't we, in cities, so that people do have that option. They don't feel scared about getting onto the road. And better infrastructure so that people can get around a city in that Goldilocks sort of 30 minutes that you describe, you know, that they don't have to uh, arrive at work stressed out or, or feeling resentful because of the time that they've had to um, sacrifice in order to just to get to their job. I mean, they say that most people are stressed out at work, really not because of the job they have to do, but because of the journeys that they have to make in order to get there and start doing that work, which is crazy. That's, you know, those solutions are in our hands. They are. Amanda, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you. HR and business writer, Amanda Woodard. And that's the show. I'm taking a break for a bit to gently shepherd the firstborn through his exams. Lisa Leon will be in the chair. Thanks to producer Murata Dice and sound engineer Hamish Camilleri. I'm Richard Aitley.